Hey everyone, this is Freen, and you're listening to Super Smash Hose. This is the podcast where we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. And today, I'm super excited to have Gigi, a queer Muslim therapist, here to help me smash the patriarchy. So Gigi, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. Um, so as already stated, I am a queer Muslim Egyptian psychotherapist from Los Angeles, California. Uh, my current ongoing academic scholarship is in uh, depth psychology, where I'm getting a PhD in uh with a focus on liberation community eco-psychologies. So a lot of my work has been in terms of decolonizing the therapeutic framework that I was originally taught and creating a space where more folks from marginalized communities feel like they're being represented in their healing. That's a lot of big words. So can we start with um, what you what you just mentioned, which was the traditional field of psychology and what that looked like and what you know you were taught maybe in your earlier days And we can start that as a starting point, if you can kind of cover what that looks like for people. Yeah, definitely. So um, a lot of what we typically tend to learn about psychology comes from early Western um, European psychoanalysts. Um, And a lot of these psychoanalysts were white, cisgender, heterosexual men. And so their psychological framework really focused on the experiences of Eurocentric you know, experiences. Um, and and as the years kind of went on, people are starting to realize that that framework doesn't actually represent their experiences. And so to kind of move away from um, what even this field that we're in in psychology has, has been colonized by a lot of these ideas um, that don't typically encompass what it means to be a queer person or to be a person of color or to live at multiple identity intersections. Uh, it, it also starts with acknowledging that even the diagnostic statistics manual that we use um, has been used to really pathologize and to, um, it doesn't come from a trauma-informed perspective. And it do, again, it doesn't encompass the experiences of people in the global South, and it doesn't encompass the experiences of people of color. So when we talk about people in the global south or we talk about marginalized communities um, and especially communities that aren't using English as their native language, do these, you know, does the vocabulary around mental health exist and how do we take the knowledge that they have um, and translate it and accurately center it in order to decolonize psychology? Yeah, so when we're we're that's a really good question because when we're talking about global south, we're we're specifically referring to overexploited, colonized, under-resourced communities, um, into which we see in a lot of these communities that there was and continues to be so much ancestral wisdom and ways in which people have found healing. Um, and it didn't have the name psychology attached to it. And when we think about even the early um, understandings of psychoanalysis and psychology, which is like the unconscious, that dates back to like the the Kemetic civilization in, in ancient Egypt. They had such a deep understanding of what the unconscious functioned like. And so moving into Western psychology was with the understanding that this is coming from 
communities who interpreted dreams, who used plant medicine, um, who oftentimes had a much more collective experience when it came to healing versus in, in Eurocentric psychological frameworks, we see that it focuses so much on the individual psyche when in reality, marginalized communities um, are experiencing trauma as a collective, as a result of, of systemic oppression. It's really interesting. I didn't think about kind of that difference between, you know, communities um, carrying trauma as a collective versus as an individual. Would you also say that, you know, in the Western um, mindset that there's tend to medicalize or approach psychology from a medical perspective versus is it different from a global South or a marginalized community perspective? Definitely. And it's interesting because if we break down the word psychology, it means study of the soul. And despite that being the case, it, it, the approach that, it's, that has been taken is the sort of focused on, on the brain and cognitions and, and thoughts and that sort of um, very intellectualized process versus what, what happens even when trauma occurs is that our body stores that trauma. And so the somatic piece that has um, really been in so many communities of color for, for centuries, that is the piece that is really missing from the, psycho, from, from the type of Eurocentric psychology that we see today. Um, and so the, the communal aspect is such an important part in decolonizing you know, any, any healing framework that, that says that we need to focus on the self, we need to focus on the individual, um, which the individual is important, but the individual is part of a larger community. And especially when we're talking about communities of color who are growing up in family systems and in larger communities where their trauma is also experienced there as well. So Gigi, how do we reconcile this need for centering the community with this like rising kind of idea of self-care? I mean, everywhere you go, you see self-care, self-care, self-care. And part of me thinks, you know, it's the commodification of mental health and it's very capitalist. But this whole rise of self-care in a way isn't reconciled with your idea of centering the community. Right. And you said you said it exactly, which is the sort of like commodification of this so-called self-care mental health movement and 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 also what you said about the capitalization of it so capitalism plays a huge role on self-care because if i tell you you know just go just go take a bath just go you know journal just do some breathing techniques then i don't have to acknowledge that the very real issues that you are dealing with that are affecting your mental health are actually coming from larger systemic issues so people who have um, food insecurity, who don't have stable housing, who are struggling financially, all of these are deep, these are, these are deep wounds that people experience that make it impossible to do something like practice mindfulness. Now, it doesn't mean that people who are struggling as, as, as a, due to, due to capitalism, cannot do these things. I mean, of course, and we have every right to be able to access that, but it has to come with the acknowledgement that these systems of oppression that are designed to keep the hierarchy the way that it is, um, makes it so that we don't get our, our basic needs met. And if we don't get our basic needs met, then it's very hard to go into the body and try to regulate in that way. That's very interesting. See, right now in my brain, I'm just trying to think about all of these systems, you know, that we know exist, capitalism, patriarchy, racism, classism, 
And these are large macro structures. And normally when I think about therapy, I think about, you know, when I close my eyes and I think about the word therapy, I see somebody sitting in a room across from a therapist with a notebook in their hand. And it's a very, you know, the picture I get in my head is a very individualized scenario. So incorporating and discussing all of these large macro processes, I'm wondering how that's happening in an actual session. Yeah, that's that's a good question because what we end up seeing is that the the psychologist or the therapist is the so-called coined expert on the experience of the client's life. And so therefore the client gets this feeling of 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 the power differential and that I need to rely on this person to help me heal. Whereas when we look at it from a decolonial perspective is that this is a mutual healing process. And yes, there is a energy exchange. There's a way in which the therapist doesn't center themselves as the person um, in the session, but I am bringing my full authentic self into the room. And so the way that I see therapy is that it's a relationship. And so many of the wounds and the traumas that we do experience as well, in addition to everything that I've already mentioned, is that we've experienced these traumas in relationships with our families, with with loved ones, within our communities. These are all relationships. So if I can, if I can provide some sort of if, if I'm ta- thinking about a service or just or just being present in the room, I am building a relationship, co-creating one with with a client, with the person that is seeking healing, and we're doing that together. So it's a mutual healing process because I'm bringing my full self into the room. But it's really, it really is like an art to to try to um, show up in a way where you're not centering yourself, but you're also showing up authentically. It's very interesting to hear you talk about, you know, therapy and comparing it to an art, whereas I've always heard of it in such highly sterile and, and medicalized terms, you know, that, that try to assert like a binary of scientific truth. Um, it, it's really refreshing, actually, to hear this type of approach. So you've talked about, you know, it, this is part of a bigger relationship. So you, your therapist and your individual, you have a relationship. And then in order to have that communal aspect, that individual has to go back and, you know, to their communities and deal with the relationships in their communities. So how does one deal with something like, you know, especially in marginalized or immigrant communities, things like intergenerational trauma, where, you know, the older members of the community might not be as willing to access therapy outright, but in order to resolve some of the individual problems that one, the, the person seeking therapy is facing, they have to address, you know, as you said, the wider relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I firmly believe that one person in any system who is 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 part of a larger group part of a family their own awareness their their own consciousness shifting is enough to shift things in in a community in a system because if a person if one person shifts then a family can shift then their friends can shift then a community can shift so in a way, I see it as, as a domino effect. And, and there is an active encouragement of, of having patience and, and, and in a way teaching and inviting the, the loved ones and the close people of, of the client to, to take an active role in, in their therapeutic journey in the sense that not necessarily in the room, but just in the things that 
um, this person is becoming more aware of. So I think that one of the most challenging things that I notice is in a lot of communities where we are overexploited and under-resourced in, within these immigrants and communities of color is that there is a stigma on, on therapy. And I think because therapy has been painted as this sort of like white healing phenomena, like this is not something that people of color do. It's, it's so-called, you know, people will use words like crazy that I don't like to use, but that's the term that gets painted onto what therapy looks like. And you said a word earlier that was very, very true and relevant, which is the, the sterile environment. And so part of, again, the decolonial process is moving away, not just from this sort of like one-on-one um, individual talk therapy, but what would it look like to incorporate, you know, movement? What does it look like to incorporate, you know, play or or uh, sort of like this eco-psychology that I'm learning right now, which is the relationship that the, that the body and the soul has to nature, like all of these ways in which we start to expand what healing looks like means that we're not sticking to this, you know, one way understanding of, of therapy and psychology. And it can be more inviting to people where these things might be a little bit more relatable. So looking at, you know, making therapy more inviting, especially to POC communities and immigrant communities, one of the things you mentioned is decentering the existing Eurocentric white male models and potentially recentering the the spirituality and the, the lessons we learned from these communities themselves. But how do we manage to do this without having, you know, traditional concepts like spirituality be co-opted? I mean, right now we're seeing such a rise of spirituality. And also I've seen a lot of questions from certain groups or certain practicers of Hinduism or certain practicers of different religions questioning these new modes of spirituality as repackaged or sanitized versions of their religion. Yeah. And and all of these are more tools of capitalism because the way that I see spirituality is that it is such a deeply profound internal experience that all of these external commodifications that we see don't actually represent the true meaning of spirituality. And again, anything that functions as a tool for capitalism can never be for the community. And so part of decentering is also centering people within the community who are already doing this work. And it doesn't have to look like so-called traditional therapy. There are people who are doing healing work outside of the sort of like colonial psychological framework model um, who are so needed when we are, when we are trying to raise awareness um, about what it looks like to incorporate you know, aspects of spirituality into into what healing looks like, because the way that I see spirituality is such a deeply internal emotional experience. Um, it, it's, it's really just like breaking off and connecting to something that you really can't put like a price tag on it. And the way that communities have historically practice spirituality looks nothing like what what Western co-optation um, of spiritual experiences are. So really it's 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 about centering the people who who understand what this looks like from a decolonized perspective, not what the white gaze wants of us when we practice spirituality. So then when we center these, you know, these people who traditionally practice it, are we centering them only for their communities? Like I guess my question is, 
can white people ever benefit from these non-Western practices without co-opting it, even if they are, you know, getting it from a person who traditionally practices it? Or are these practices really just for those communities? So when we're talking about, you know, intergenerational trauma, I think a lot about how white folks tend to really focus on somehow wanting to benefit from us, benefit from our practices, the very practices that have literally been historically and continue to be stolen from us and co-opted and sold and and all of these things. And, And what I see as the, I guess, a really big purpose that white people are are to take on is the active dismantling of white supremacy, these very difficult conversations. And however spirituality may show up for them, sure, you know, there there are ways to potentially uh, respectfully observe or understand like what this looks like. But at the end of the day, like we're, we're looking at people who, in a larger society really are allowed access to anything. And that, that also means access into our most sacred spaces. And it's not because the invitation that, that is offered to white people often to enter our sacred spaces is, is for also survival reasons. And we see this a lot in indigenous communities where they have really sacred practices that, that sometimes they do invite white people into their space. And that is a very, very, a sacred invitation. And so it, it's really about understanding that what your role is as, as a white person, as a person who has a ton of, of privilege and historical trauma around what colonization does to the person. It's like a psychic mutilation that literally happens to disconnect yourself from, from pain, from suffering of people of color that in itself is its own lifetime of work. And that's what I invite white people to really look at and, and think about when they are when they're considering like, hmm, should I take on this spiritual practice that probably doesn't belong to me or to my community? So I started this podcast episode thinking, going into it, you know, I knew that the topic was going to be um, decolonizing therapy. And in my head, I thought, right, decolonizing therapy, this is going to be for people of color. People of color need therapists who understand systems of oppression and racism. And, you know, now I'm also thinking it's not just people of color who need a form of decolonized therapy, because like you just said, you know, white people need to understand how uh, colonization and these projects of racism have led to a a psychological uh, mutilation, as you said. So what I'm understanding isn't that, you know, decolonizing therapy is some kind of small category within an overarching, you know, psych, um, psychology, but actually what we're moving towards making all of the field of psychology look like. Am I correct in that? Absolutely. And, you know, we think about if we do sort of like a mini scenario of a white client going to a white therapist who is using this very like colonial Eurocentric individualistic framework who never challenges the clients, you know, racist ideologies, who never challenges really anything versus that white client going to even another white therapist who is actively committed to to what a decolonial process looks like and doing anti-racism work and challenging the um, historical trauma and working through that of, of colonization that white client is going to benefit so much more deeply from that therapist than, than the therapist before. And that's why 
doing this work, again, it's also like this sort of like art game, Russian roulette type of situation of how do we center the voices of people of color while still acknowledging that everyone suffers under under the system, but there are people who get to benefit from it at the same time. It, and, and, and that's the strange part is that, yes, white people are benefiting from it, but there's also a way in which the, the suffering that that happens is very intrapsychic and it's very deep. And then to undo that, to unwind that, that is a lifetime commitment. And so decolonizing psychology is something that is really like an umbrella that covers everyone so that we can all collectively heal together while acknowledging the voices that need to be centered and the voices that do not need to be talked over and co-opted. Like I don't need more, you know, white psychologists and therapists speaking for us. I need them to listen and to be aware of their own bias and aware of their own ways in which they contribute to colonization and continued oppression of, of marginalized communities. So even just in my, my own studies, I've, I've noticed this, that there is often a disconnect between academia and practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, how much is decolonizing therapy happening in practice? Or are these discussions still relatively academic? Like, are most mm-hmm. students, you know, walking out of their undergrad psychology classes with this understanding and this, you know, real urgent need to decolonize therapy? Or is this something you only get into? Once you do a master's, once you do a PhD, once you're at the level that you're at. You know, what I'm seeing is that for the most part, honestly, most psychology programs, MFT, masters of social work, whatever that may be, typically center this very, you know, this this very ideology that we're talking about, which is, we're, we're talking about people's experiences. We're talking about va- vignettes and case conceptualizations, and it's very intellectual, um, and it's coming from the perspective of, of white psychologists, white cishet male psychologists. And so this conversation, we have to acknowledge that what we are learning about, what we are practicing, even in these more like liberation-focused decolonial um, places and PhD programs or whatever, is that we are essentially learning what the experiences are of everyday working class black and brown people. And they just, and and the ways in which academia functions is that it gatekeeps these conversations. Um, And so I'm, I'm feeling, you know, lucky enough to be in a program right now where I'm able to challenge the ways in which we often intellectualize these experiences and, and put them more into praxis and back into the community from from the perspective of also acknowledging our positionality like I am in a privileged position to be able to have this conversation right now and that's often the place that people don't typically acknowledge that that's there like I really appreciated you know and when we started the podcast is you asked me to break down what decolonizing you know psychology even means because that isn't like a, a lay person's term it's not something that everyone just, knows what that means, but it is something that is actively happening. Um, Yet we're just seeing that a lot of the dominant narratives around doing this work has stayed in this sort of like so-called ivory tower and really gate kept within academia. And academia is, is all of our ancestral wisdom and knowledge repackaged and then put a price tag on it. 
Um, and, and that's how I've continued to see what this looks like. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I've always struggled myself with academia and finding it to be very gatekeeping, just as you said, the ivory tower. Um, I did a master's in gender and public policy, and we talked a lot about um, third world feminism and, you know, the experiences of women in developing countries in the global south. And we centered a lot of voices of decolonization. And I thought to myself, gosh, this sounds like stuff my mom used to tell me when I was a kid. Why do I need a master's to learn about this? And one of the reasons I, I really wanted to reach out to you to do this interview was because I thought that you were actively dismantling that ivory tower because of the content you put out on TikTok is so accessible. I mean, we know that TikTok is, you know, a majority of probably Gen Z users and they don't have PhDs. They're not in the academia. They're young people um, who are dealing with, you know, life probably at some of the hardest times. Being a teenager sucks. And you know, your content is so accessible. It's so understandable. And it really felt like to me, that was the first time I, I felt like I heard these higher level discussions being taken into actual communities. Yeah, I, you know, thank you for saying that. And and it's something that in whatever, whatever this journey has taken me on, I, I, I kind of don't even, I can't even pinpoint exactly what it, what it is, but it's allowed me the opportunity to be in a position where I can, you know, bridge some of these conversations and acknowledge that the, the best thing that we can do as, as people in these positions is to invite uh, a, a, a sort of understanding of what these conversations look like and then and then leave so that people can cultivate these things on their own. It's not so that you can need the person who's in the privileged position. It's not to, when I see empowerment, I see it as like a transfer of power, not to take power away to make that person need, you know, these people in positions of academia or professions that are healing professions or whatnot um, to continue to need them. So, the way TikTok has looked like for me is putting contents out there and and allowing these conversations to circulate and surface in in the way that feels best for the people that need it the most. Uh, because, like you said, like the way that we function in academia, there is just such a a gatekeeping process that we forget that a lot of these things we kind of learned in a lot of ways, uh, but it just it didn't look like this capitalist elitist perspective that we typically see um, when we enter an academic institution. Yeah, that's that's exactly something I found difficult, right? You know, you can read all these journal articles and you can see all this big jargon and these words. And if you spoke to me, you know, about psychology, the way you probably talk in your PhD classes, I would be lost right now. I would be so confused because there is always this vocabulary that goes with every every discipline, right? Especially at higher levels. And I think that makes it so uninviting for everyday people where we feel like it doesn't affect our lives because that's just something that those academics are doing at Harvard. And, you know, that's their, their little discussions in their salons or their pubs and it doesn't affect us when in reality, a lot of this is our lived, like, as you said, right, you know, you're trying to understand the lived experience of black and brown people. And, you know, model that on a larger scale. So for a lot of us, we recognize this individually. We recognize these struggles. And yet we didn't recognize that they were part of larger structures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to, to, to raise awareness about 
the ways in which these systems of oppression, they really, they make us sick, they make us ill, they cause so many of the traumas that we are actively living through. Um, to, to raise awareness about that is such an important piece. And one of the things that I really advocate for in just my therapy practice and the work that I do is, is psychoeducation. And what that education looks like is that it should be accessible to everyone. It should be available um, for people to be able to, to, to get a deeper understanding about um, and so I really just I strongly believe in in, in the power of um, having a community experience where there is like an awareness that is happening about about certain things. So in terms of education, how do we move beyond? And I'm talking about education, not for those who want to become or enter the psychology field. I'm talking about, you know, sure. uh, education for everyday people. So. You know, when I think about people learning about mental health, I think back to my high school classroom in health class and we got taught, hey, like, make sure you don't burn out during exam season. How do we, you know, really talk about the proper ways? Because, you know, a lot of the things that we were taught too were very capitalist modes of self-care. You know, make sure you take a bubble bath, make sure you do this, find ways to relax with your friends. In these settings, especially with young people learning about mental health, how do we educate them about, you know, therapy and these these difficult questions of, hey, what you're seeing as self-care might not actually be self-care. What you should actually address is this. Is our intervention point schools? Is our intervention points families? Or is our in- intervention points directly to these individuals through apps like TikTok? You know, I think that social media has has really shifted um, accessibility and how we function around circulating information, especially in the pandemic. So I definitely think that, you know, social media is an, an important tool. And at the same time, there are people who don't have phones, who don't have access to social media, who are, are a lot more disconnected um, from this world. And, you know, yes, a lot of the, the Gen Zers now and, and the teenagers, they do have that access. But for the folks that don't, it is really important to be able to go into community spaces and and relationship build. You know, a lot of what I see community organizing and education and all of that is is relationship building um, and getting to know people from a from a heartfelt place. That to me is spirituality. That is decolonizing because what colonization has done is it has literally destroyed the ability to connect and have you know, heartfelt relationship building, emotional com- conversations, um, and and has has ripped that away from from so many communities for this and and to survive. And we've we've had to do that to survive. So the way that I see this work is that it's it's relationship building, and it requires coming from from the heart, and it requires coming from a place that isn't an intellectual process. So uh, yeah, so social media is a tool. And at the same time, you know, when we're not in a, in a global pandemic and it allows for us to be in person and build in that way, it is important to really go into 
com communities with the acknowledgement of where you are going and why you are doing it also. So there's a, there's kind of like a, a fine line there as well. This isn't like an invitation for, you know, white people to go into communities of color to try to incorporate something, but I, I'm talking people who are within their own communities, you know, how to have these um, conversations and, and what that would look like. And especially, I think youth are such an important demographic of people that we typically forget about because we assume that they're so-called not adult enough to understand these things, but they understand everything. And this, and, and to talk to youth and to talk to people who don't have access to academia in the ways that we do means that we have to make things accessible. And that's not something that a lot of people are willing to do. Yeah. And you know, something I really didn't expect out of this conversation that is becoming more and more clear to me is that this is a very interdisciplinary process. Again, when I close my eyes and I do a word association of the word therapy or the academic discipline of therapy, I think about it with a little box around it, you know, existing in its own little corner. And you have things like racism in its own little corner or social structures or politics or, you know, it's economics. And I, I think traditionally we have this conception of all of these you know, disciplines existing in their own little boxed spots. And what I'm really getting from this conversation is kind of this emphasis of intersectionality and interdisciplinary conversation is really essential for decolonizing therapy. And so when you have, you know, all of these moving parts, that's a lot of things to try to address, right? Because you're not simply addressing the mind then in there in like the way you would in traditional therapy. You're also addressing class and political structures and racist structures and these things are these structures are dynamic as we know they're ever changing so how does one stay on top of it when they leave the academics or the academia you know there you're you're right there are so many moving parts um and you know we come back to being in the in the position of of you know, having the privilege to read all of these things and be able to make meaning from it. I really just, I think about accessibility and I think about themes and connecting pieces. There's a lot of moving pieces, but there's a lot of connecting pieces. And one of the most connecting pieces that I see is like, how do all of these different practices, all of these different disciplines, all the things that we are trying to, to you know, merge with each other, what are what is the relationship that they have with each other and how does this become accessible and and you know re resurfaced so that um it is it is humanizing and that it is uh, like like that that there's room for people within the community um to utilize it it's not just for for the books it's not just uh for for things on paper and it requires us to move past all that we know of, of, of how we relate to each other. Um, and it requires imagination and it requires creativity. And, and these are all things that, again, through a colonial processes has been taken away from us for uh, because, because of survival reasons. And so being able to access imagination and access creativity, I see as also such an important piece in how we merge all of these disciplines together and, and what are their relationships to each other? Because they can't just stay in books. Uh, th there's no way. And they don't just stay in books because these are people's lived experiences that have been translated into text and into academic jargon. 
Uh, but it's really about the, the relationships and just the humanization of all of the things that we are reading. And how does that apply into community? I think that's really interesting, especially the point about imagination and creativity. Because again, you know, you don't associate those words with therapy. Um, I, I actually just, I want to add something real quick about just the piece of, of creativity and imagination and playfulness and healing. Like oftentimes I think one of the associations that we think of uh, when we talk about therapy is that it's like this very, you know, it's it like, you know, one of the words you said today really stuck out to me is sterile. It's like the sterile environment where I'm going to talk about my trauma and I'm just going to, you know, really be going through it. And it's like, in, in some sense, healing is very difficult and it is very it can be earth shattering because you're literally moving away from all of the ways that you've needed to protect yourself, that you've navigated the world, that you've navigated your family and your childhood and all of these things. And you're breaking away from those mechanisms and you're, and you're learning new ones and you're, you're living a life that almost feels completely different than the place that you were in when you were actively living within these traumas. And it's the acknowledgement that you know, we're not we're not here in therapy to necessarily acquire safety because that's not that's not possible. We live in a world that is inherently unsafe. I can teach something to a client. They'll leave the 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 session and realize that the world is unsafe. And what am I going to do? So it's about how can we access creativity and joy and playfulness and our imagination and all of these things and co-create them within community, within our relationships um, so that we can survive this world. It's about it's about preparing the body to be able to walk into a world that is unsafe. And I think one of the most colonial, white, individualistic centered ways in which we understand psychology is the assumption that there's a way in which we can, you know, acquire safety, feel safe after having experienced trauma and then be OK, because it doesn't acknowledge that trauma is recurring for a lot of us because of these larger systems at play and because of many factors. And so we have to learn to literally survive under these systems, but how can we do that? Not from just this sterile, you know, environment, but with, with acknowledging all of these other pieces as well. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think most lay people, you know, um, everyday people have this concept of therapy as being very linear. Um, me, me included, right? Like, I think I walked into this session with a vague understanding of what we were going to talk about, but I had lots of preconceived notions of what therapy looked like. And in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's mind, a traumatic event happens, you know, you struggle maybe for a while on your own with that traumatic event. And then maybe you go and seek some help um, and you get therapy. And then you you do all these sessions and you talk about your feelings and you sit on the couch. And then, you know, maybe after 10 weeks, you're cured and you're good. And that never happens, you know, you never relive that trauma again, but it's not like that. It's not this linear, you get fixed um, kind of process. And I guess that what you're saying is that's not also the goal of therapy. Another thing I thought was really interesting is about play and imagination is often in society in general, I don't know if this applies to therapy, but I find in general in society, we seem to trivialize the role of you know, creativity or play or imagination, unless you do those things professionally, right? Like if you're a professional actor or a professional painter, that's fine, you're making millions. But for the everyday person, it seems so trivialized as an adult, especially to, to engage in those activities. So how do we make it okay 
to do that? Not just okay, but how do we say this is necessary? Yeah, because, you know, I think it's it really starts with one acknowledging that this very intellectualized process is something that we've been conditioned to and taught that this is the only way to go to go about life to go through you know your your so-called profession or work or or how you navigate the world and in reality it's it's the play and it's 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 the fun it's the joy it's that that liberating feeling that literally keeps us alive i mean you know, a lot of ways in which I see now, especially like, you know, Gen Z on, on TikTok, like using humor as a way to cope with trauma. And if we look at older psychological, psychoanalytic frameworks, they'll say like, oh, humor, you're using that as a defense mechanism to avoid having to feel the feelings. And it's like, wait, hold on, though. Like, if we're using humor as a way to to work through these really painful and uncomfortable feelings that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, and, and there is this trivializing of what play is and this idea that play is just this like, you know, thing that little kids do because we also trivialize children, which is kind of like its own conversation, but we don't see it as that like play is everything in in our life that we do that brings us joy, that makes us feel alive and connected in, in some way. And that's the piece that can be missing sometimes when we think about, you know, trauma informed care and what what therapy is supposed to look like, because therapy isn't just this like therapizing, like you said, kind of like, I'm going to fix you type of thing, because there's no one's broken. We're all we're all trying to survive under these really rigid, you know, Western capitalistic systems that have taken these things away from us. And how do we reclaim them? And so a lot of that is also doing like inner child work and recognizing like, what are the things that we enjoyed, even just like growing up that that we're we're taught now to, to not connect back to because that's, that's uh, trivial, that's, you know, that's not adult like whatever that means. I think it's really interesting, too, for immigrant communities. I know my parents are from India. Um, We immigrated to Canada when I was two years old. And I think it's a common feeling for many immigrant children that we had to grow up really fast, Um, especially if we were the oldest. I wasn't, but, you know, my brother was the oldest. And I think there is this kind of sense that we need to, now that we're adults, we need to nurture that inner child that didn't get the attention. That So... I think we've talked a lot about in Western society, lots of these Western patriarchal structures shape the way immigrants and POC and marginalized groups experience the world. Um, And it is the result of so much need to just constantly survive. Right. What about, you know, the systems, like if we, if we shift our focus from POC and marginalized communities here in the West to what these people's lives are actually like in the global South or in their home countries and the systems they have to work within there. Do we see, I mean, I'm sure we see different needs, but to what extent and and how are they differing and how are they also the same? Hmm. Wow. That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of even just like a really like baseline thing. I mean, I'm trying to think about my own experience as a, you know, first generation uh, Egyptian Muslim American living in the States versus what my experience would have been like if I grew up in Egypt. 
and what I would imagine my needs are here versus my needs are there. And I think that one of the one of the threads that 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 kind of connects these two experiences, one that's more like uh, imagine like I, I'm imagining and the other one that's more practical is my life right now, which is community and relationships and 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 building in that way is like a universal experience. And so that's why it does such a disservice living in the West for people who are born in the diaspora and for immigrant communities to to have that taken away from them. And I know that one of the things that oftentimes, you know, immigrants and refugees and people who have been, you know, forced to leave their home country, one of the things that they typically miss the most is just like it's community, it's family, it's being able to ask your neighbor for some sugar or going down to the store and recognizing the person that works there. All of these things have have been taken from us um, for many different reasons. And so here we find what that community looks like and 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 how to show up and feel uh just feel seen in that way and, and i guess if i use my own experience in that way i know that that's what i would need and i i can imagine that that's what a lot of folks um can potentially resonate with as well yeah no I, i'm trying to think of it too um just how you did it, imagining my situation if i you know was still in india and I think, you know, one thing that is very similar and very different is both here in, in Canada and in India, I would face the effects of colonization, right? But in very different ways. I'd also, you know, there are these structures of there's patriarchy still here in Canada and there's patriarchy in India, but again, they operate in very different ways. So I think an interesting, you know, discussion and, and I take, I always try to think about things in a global perspective because I did an undergrad in international politics and I love thinking about everything globally. Um, and especially like, you know, when we talk about transnational feminism, something that's really important in those discussions is we're not trying to take a model from the West and copy and paste it in other countries. We're trying to have dialogue and conversation about, hey, we have that here too, but it's kind of different. And how that informs our collective understanding of these systems, I think, is really interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I find it so interesting that community is one of those things in therapy that exists, you know, no matter how much you universalize. Yeah, them. absolutely. Um, and and it's again, you know, it's about finding these these common threads and and acknowledging that there there are very real hegemonic structures that exist on a on a global sort of level and and affects everyone in a different way and then there are also certain folks that experience things um in in, in almost anywhere that they go um uh in a way that that is very familiar regardless of of ge- geographical location because these hegemonic you know structures are are very much in place in that way due to colonization and due to all of these you know other systems of oppression so i think it's it is really important in any in any discipline, if we're thinking, you know, from a therapeutic perspective or whatever that may be, is to acknowledge these common threads because, especially living in a place where you're constantly coming across people who come from different communities, we're gonna need to find the common thread. There's no way to learn about every single detail within every community, but we have to really look at themes um, and things that bring us together and things that also affect us um, in very particular ways. 
I think that's very pertinent, especially with, you know, we're seeing the rise in anti-violence against Asian communities. We're seeing, not that it's any of this is new, but lots of hate towards black and brown communities. And like you said, it's impossible for any one person to know every single detail about every single community. But once we find those common threads between us, it becomes so much easier to build solidarity. Um, I wanted to kind of leave off by asking you about what resources marginalized communities can turn to? What are good resources, you know, that aren't centering this existing Eurocentric traditional orthodox model of therapy? Yeah, so um, I can actually share some, I don't I don't know how, how this will work. I can share some links with you for people to access, but also just kind of like in a, in a general sense, if people are looking for therapists, it's really important to um, kind of follow directories that center the experiences and and, uh, therapists of color. Um, So we can look at inclusive therapists, for example, is like my go-to. In the U.S., I'm not entirely sure about Canada, but um, I think when when looking for a therapist, regardless of what directory that you're, um, you know, searching through, is that it's really important to really focus on on interviewing your therapist, making sure that your needs are being met in that way. And so in terms of resourcing, unfortunately, we're seeing that they're kind of really like spread out and even certain directories that are specifically like inclusive therapists, for example, are specifically directed towards, um, you know, uh, communities of color and marginalized communities as uh, in, in that vein um, is that they don't apply to every single area. So people who live in really rural cities or who live outside of the U.S., like it doesn't um, apply in that way. But um, I can share some um, resources with you in regards to uh, directories ac- across the U.S. that might be helpful um, for folks who are trying to find a therapist and just trying to find a space where um, they can do some healing work. Yeah, that would be amazing. And we'll include all of that in the show notes um, links. I guess, you know, I'm sorry, I keep asking you questions, even though I said I, we're going to round up. But when we talk about, you know, finding an inclusive therapist, that step to find a therapist that meets your needs, that that already presumes that you have some understanding of these systems, right? You already have this level of knowledge where you understand that the normal therapist, the quote unquote traditional therapist, isn't going to meet your needs. Maybe this is too big, but like what about the people who just don't have that understanding yet? And that's the thing is, is therapy really has been packaged in a way where not it is really not accessible. It's not affordable. It's not accessible. It's, you know, there there are a lot of um, issues when it comes to accessibility. And so the idea is that, you know, therapy is supposed to be available to everyone and, and, and everyone should have an understanding of what that is. But again, if we think about the sort of like a repackaging of ancestral wisdom and all of that sort of thing is that there there are ways to work within community and do relationship building and healing work and all of that sort of stuff without you know having therapy necessarily as as the only model but i think the thing that therapy does offer that may be a little bit different and and i'm kind of just like speculating right now is that 
there is a type of like trust and confidentiality in that relationship that is very specific. And so my hope is that therapy will become something that is not only accessible, but understood by, you know, the majority of people of like what its function is. But you're absolutely right is that we're going through so many hoops is that first understanding, like, you know, how do I even access therapy? Like, what is therapy? How do I even trust that this is something that I can go into um, and and know that my needs are going to be met? And then trying to find someone who perhaps works from a decolonial anti-oppression lens and framework and then vetting more and more and more until, you know, it took me as a therapist who is doing this work I went through eight different therapists before I finally found one and was like, this is the one. And I pay like a hundred dollars for each session. Like it's expensive and it's, you know, it's, it's really become inaccessible in a way. But I think that that's, that that's part of the work that I'm really hoping to continue to do is, is how do we make it accessible and destigmatizing all at the same time? Yeah, I, I'm floored. I mean, I have so I've learned so much from this hour. It's insane. Like my mind is just buzzing. I have like little arrows shooting off into every direction. I could ask a million questions, but I won't. <laughs> I think if people want to learn more, I, they they're just gonna have to follow you on TikTok or Instagram. I mean, that's where all of the knowledge is gonna be. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for for having me and and you know opening this dialogue and this conversation and um, yeah thank thank you so much. Anytime. I hope for listeners it seemed accessible. I hope we weren't talking at this you know overly high level, making it seem abstract. Because um, I think the whole point of this this whole discussion was to try to normalize therapy, bring down the stigma, like you said, and and talk about how decolonizing it is really central and it's not as daunting and academic as it sounds. Yes, absolutely. Thank you guys all so much for listening. You can follow Gigi um, on social media. All of her links will be linked in the show notes and you can follow us as well. Thank you again.